Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about The Mitchells versus The Machines. The animated film arrived on Netflix this past Friday. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with it because we both thought it was fantastic, and we just kind of want to dive into talking about this film. We won't be going into spoilers because, you know, it's Netflix. We don't know how many people have seen it. And it's not even really a film that I would say you could spoil, but like, I'm not going to like share some of my favorite jokes from this film. I want people to, uh, I want people to check, to see it for themselves, to check it out. And so that's, uh, it's just a film that I immediately fell for. And Phil Lord and Chris Miller are the producers. And I seem to just, whatever they do, I am just on their wavelength. And I think a lot of people are, I don't think I'm special in that regard. They've been very successful, but (laughs) They've made some of like my favorite movies of the of this of this century so far, and yeah. uh, Mitchell versus the Machines. Who I should you know say that the directors is uh, Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe, I believe. It's- yeah, Mike Rianda is the director. Jeff Rowe is the, the co-writer co-dir- and co-director. Yeah. Co-director. So I want to give them their due and and not just be like this is really Lord and Miller, um, but it's a great film. And uh, Adam, what did you think about it? I loved it. I was bowled over by it. it you know, it, it's one of those films that, you know, I've said this before, it had me laughing and crying in equal measure. Like it, the emotional moments hit really hard and they come really early in the film, um, which I was surprised by. But then like just some of the gags in this movie are so funny. <laughs> like the yeah. comedy is so good. And I think, you know, part of me was, I wasn't dreading it, but part of me, part of my brain was like, oh, another family comedy because almost every animated movie these days is a family comedy and you know pixar is a little different pixar does buddy comedies usually um but so many of those like the crudes or even something like trolls it's like found family they're all about like you know a family is struggling to get along and they have to get through it and at the end there's an emotional catharsis and this movie really puts in the work to actually be a family comedy it is Mm -hmm. about it reflects what a family really feels and looks like um and the struggles that go on inside of a family it doesn't feel like it's, it doesn't feel cloying or repetitive um, or even particularly manipulative. It feels, it's weird because it feels unique, but it's not unique. Like it's not a special story. It's a story that's been told a bunch of times before, but I think it's the way it's being told. Um, and like the degree of compassion it has for its characters is really something else. And the boundless creativity, I think is the other thing is that, you know, it's a story of a, a girl who's about to go to college and she wants to be a filmmaker and it's told through her eyes. So then the visualization of that story is boundless creativity. You know, she's a filmmaker. She makes wacky, funny little videos. Then the film itself is a wacky, funny video um, at certain times. And I just found that really a really fascinating way to tell this story. And I think it made all the difference because you look at, again, you look at all these other family animated comedies and you're like, it's fine. It was fine. There were a couple of funny gags. They had a little creature who I want to buy a plush of. Like that's really how it goes. Um, And this just felt like at every, at every turn, it was doing the work necessary to make it stand out. I do want to buy a mochi. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and that's, that's not to say that this movie is not those things. Like it still does, Mm -hmm. you know, it still is a family comedy where they're dysfunctional and they have to work together and they're stronger by the end of it. Like that's just how these stories go. They, it is. I think one of the, the benefits of Mitchell's versus the machines is that it doesn't feel like it's trying to save 
the emotional bits for the end or the or for like the second act turn like it really leans every every time there's an emotional beat it really leans into it and it really sort of makes you think about it and consider it and not in a way that feels tonally dissonant like we are going to shut off the laughs for now it is time for emotion like it it works it all feels cohesive it all all works cohesive. God, what is with my language today? Uh, it all works cohesively, and it's uh, it, it doesn't feel abrupt when there's an emotional beat. And instead, by layering those emotional moments throughout the film, it really does make the payoff feel more. Uh, feel feels more earned. It it doesn't feel like okay now it's time for the one emotional scene that ties everything together. Rather, it's a film that is not afraid to have those emotional moments in the first place. Yeah. And you and I had this conversation and I, I interviewed uh, the director, Mike Rianda and Phil Lord and Chris Miller recently. You can watch that 40 minute interview on Collider right now or on our YouTube channel. Um, But we talked about how the emotional scenes are almost like set pieces. Like, Like they are the set pieces of the film. They come almost every 20 minutes. They really slow the thing down with a purpose. And it like makes you stand up and pay attention Whereas I think in a lot of other family movies like that, you can kind of like, even if you're looking at your phone the whole time, just by listening to the score, you can kind of follow the beats and you're like, oh, this is the quiet moment where the dad and the father or the dad and the daughter reconnect or like have a nice moment. But because they happen so early in this film, you're at, at first you're taken aback by it, but it sets, it sets a foundation on which the emotional storytelling is going to um, occur with that first emotional moment, which is, um, I believe it's the father finding the girls like young, uh, her videos for the films that she made when she was younger. Um, But then they, you know, they keep coming where you have, you know, a really emotional, the next one I think is an emotional scene between um, the father and uh, his wife. And it's a discussion between two parents about their children and about a disconnect with their daughter uh, and how the daughter and the father are not able to understand one another. Um, and again, it's providing a path of empathy towards these characters. So your protagonist is Katie. It's the young burgeoning filmmaker. So many other movies would be like, oh, the dad is an old fogey. He doesn't understand, you know, he's lame and, you know, he has to come around at the end. And at the end, he's going to be, you know, hip and cool and he's into it. That's not the way this movie works. The movie wants you to understand where he's coming from and why he's feeling what he's feeling. And it really made me, it made me tear up. Like I started to like cry 20 minutes into this movie, which is, is unusual for films of this sort. In some ways it feels sort of like a more advanced version of what they were trying to do, of Lord and Miller, what they did with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs in that there is also that sort of parent-child disconnect where um, Flynn is very, he's very creative, he's kind of original, and his father is kind of more of a blue-collar guy, doesn't really understand him, kind of wants him to come around to his way of thinking. It's not that he dislikes his child, he just doesn't get him. Mm -hmm. And, And Cloudy kind of resolves it by like, you know, they put the monkey translator on on the dad's head <laughs> and uh, you have a nice moment. <laughs> and look, I love Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I think it is, to me, it's the, I mean, it's the film. I saw that before I had really even seen much of Clone High. So that to me was the film that really, put, you know, made me aware of Lord and Miller. But, you know, I feel like 
the Mitchells versus the machines is taking that kind of relationship and really fleshing it out in a way that's, that's at a higher level, you know, and that's not to say that cloudy is a bad film. I just feel like Mitchells versus the machines is a more advanced, uh, more nuanced take on it. Well, and it's been over a decade since cloudy. So they've grown as filmmakers. They've matured. They've been through, you know, they've made live action movies. Now they've made a really difficult live action movie that they didn't necessarily complete. Um, release the Lord hashtag release the Lord and yeah. cut. hashtag release the Lord and Miller cut of so solo, uh, which I would be very interested in seeing that rough cut. Um, but you know, again, this is Mike Rianda's story and, and talking to him, like the nugget of the story was really Sony was like, do you have any ideas for any movies? And he was like, I have tons of ideas. And he had no ideas. So he just like kind of was like, oh, I could do something with my family because, you know, the idea that everyone thinks their family is weird. And he was like, also, I've been obsessed with like machines and robots. Like, what if I combine those two things? So it started there. And the nugget of the story, you know, the emotion, I don't think the emotion is unique to Lord and Miller. I think Mike Rianda uh, Mm -hmm. provided the foundation for that emotional storytelling. But I do think Lord and Miller have had a lot of experience making, even in the Jump Street films, which are very silly comedies, there's an emotional undercurrent through both of those movies. 22 Jump Street is almost a love story between these two guys who love each other, who are falling apart um, and are worried about losing one another. and I think that's something that they're very good at kind of homing in on. And I think they do a very good job of doing that with Mitchell's versus machines. Yeah. I think sort of the secret, you know, sauce of it all is that they are not afraid of the emotional beats that they need to hit. And yeah. sort of, especially between um, parents and children. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that that's recurring, uh, not just, you know, that happens not just in cloudy, that's part of the Lego movie. That's part of uh, spider verse. Um, and it's obviously the part of this story as well, but they're also just it, r- ridiculously funny people. That's just, I, that's the thing. I mean, we're talking a lot about the emotion stuff and I can't stress enough how funny Mitchell's versus the machines is <laughs> with all of it. It's just a bunch of very good. And if you've seen the trailer, like, I guess it's not a spoiler to be like the Furby scene and just like <laughs> how weird that is and how great and you know and the just, dark harvest begin <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly like it's just it's so it's just such a big swing um <laughs> but they know how to hit those comic beats in a way that is just sort of unabashedly silly um and it's you know i i mean comedy is hard it's very hard to get a laugh you know if you ever you know, people think that they're funny and it's, they're funny in the sense of like, they have good chemistry with their friend group. But if you ever try to sit down a stranger and just make them laugh, it's incredibly yeah. difficult to do it. And they Matt seem- tries this all the time. He's been doing it during the whole pandemic. He just walks <laughs> up to people on the street. I just walk up to people and be like, so what's the deal with masks, eh? <laughs> and then I get sprayed in the face with hand sanitizer. See, that's me trying to get a laugh from you, the audience. And there's probably dead silence on the other end of this yeah, yeah, podcast. Okay. I can see. I, yeah, I can see point. why yeah. this is tough. Yeah, exactly. Loud, comedy. It's not for everyone. <laughs> so, you know, but like they just, I mean, I'm thinking like, it's not just like they have like one mode of humor. Like it's almost kind of hard to pin down. Like what is even their comedy style? Like, yeah, it's irreverent yeah it's kind of heartwarming it's silly it's but it's it's again it's hard to the humor in a film like this is not the same humor 
that you would see in uh, that I would say is in Spider-Verse, you know, yeah. but Spider-Verse is also very funny. Well, and it's also, I think something they really understand is, is humor that makes sense with the character or makes sense with the story they're telling. And I think mm-hmm. because Mitchell's versus the machine, I think because they did so much work grounding those characters emotionally and really making sure those emotional moments land so that you already have, you're like, all right, I have deep roots into these characters. I am invested into them. So that when the Furby scene happens where like the dark harvest begins and it's like, it's just a, a like an army of Furbies who clearly have like communicated with one another or like there is a dark harvest. It doesn't have to be explained. You know, it, it has no connection with anything else. It is not referred to later on in the film. It's just it, this very silly thing that happens that is funny. It is just inherently funny, but you allow that you will allow it to happen without explanation because you care about the characters. So it's kind of like, you know, whatever wacky shenanigans they get into, it tracks because I care about what's happening to them. Right. And and the thing is, there's also just not like one mode of humor in this film. Like there's the sort of the kind of crazy drawings that uh, Katie sort of imprints her style mm-hmm. over the film. Those are fun. But then you have like some sort of social commentary with the whole uh, technology and sort of, you know, the, the villain of this film is pal, which is sort of a stand in for all this kind of all these Silicon uh, Valley tech companies that are harvesting your data and are claiming to make life easier. Um, or just I the, think, ro- the dysfunctional robots drawing human faces on themselves. Yes, and the, the robots are, are kind of are, are scene stealers. Yeah. The robots um, are very funny. Or even like just sight gags, like um, uh, like reference humor. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have references to like Kill Bill towards the end of this film um, or just even, you know, like samurai films that I think, I think there's one really obscure reference. That, do you know what I'm talking about? I can't remember. I haven't seen the film, um, but there's one super obscure reference. Uh, Maybe. To- I mean, these are the guys who, you know, in Cloudy have one of my most, deep cut one of the most deep cut obscure references ever which is when they have to plug the uh, something into the to the machine the flirtifer at the end and it's a port but it says welcome to moose port (laughs) 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 i think that's like like so so they're not afraid of a of a very obscure reference yeah yeah but that's what i appreciate about it because the humor continues to change and you know, again, I keep coming back to like other studio animated films and, and, you know, this is mass market uh, entertainment. Like these films are supposed to appeal to like kids from ages like two to seven are supposed to really love these kinds of movies. So, you know, you, you get something like Secret Life of Pets or, or one of those films that's just like pretty easy to follow along with a lot of very silly gags, things making funny faces and funny noises um, and falling down like pratfalls and stuff like that. So I don't know. It's just refreshing to see something like this where it feels like it's taking the time to really nail a joke or really just like pushing the joke to its extreme. How can it be funnier and better? Um I will say I don't have kids, so I don't know if I don't know if kids are like getting this or like. I will say it or... that my I have a, I have a good friend, and he has a his daughter. I think is about five, five or six, and they ended up watching Mitchell versus the Machines twice this weekend. Oh, nice! So okay. she was a fan. I also think it's just a really positive, like progressive film because it's you know it's not like, oh, I want to be an artist. It's I want to be a filmmaker. And it's a girl talking about like movies that have been important to her. That feels like a story that we haven't seen very Mm -hmm. often. Like it's, you know, 
I'm trying to think of what like the traditional hero's journey and like a an animated family movie about humans. It's usually more general, like something like the Crudes. It's like I want to break out of my shell and I yeah, I want life. to I want to go on my own path, path not specified. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And again, this isn't to denigrate those films. I mean, they're very successful and people enjoy them. And I think the Crudes is fine. Um, it's just like that is the that is the formula that we see over and over and over and over again in these kinds of movies. Right. No, I think this, there, there's just a great level of specificity here. And the thing that sort of, you know, in my mind, the thing that I'm wondering about. So for those who don't know, this movie was originally titled Connected, and mm-hmm. it was originally supposed to be released in theaters by Sony Pictures Animation. And then because of the pandemic, they decided, you know, it's better for us to just ship this off to Netflix. And I don't think Netflix is a bad home for it by any means. Um but I can't help but wonder, like, like, would this have, like, how would this have played in theaters, like, with a crowd? Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, I think every studio had to make hard decisions in terms of, like, what do we hang on to and what do we sell off? And, you know, there have been some films that were, that were basically shipped to streaming because they were bad. Yeah. They were just like, this is not worth it for a theatrical release. It'll never find that much of an audience. Let's just cut our losses. Um, this is not one of those movies. This is not a movie where... You know, I, it's it. You could you could make the argument that perhaps Sony made a mistake um, shipping it off. Um, I don't know. And then again, and then again, maybe Netflix just offered them a ridiculous amount of money for it. Who yeah, knows? I don't entirely understand it because I mean, we've been seeing Paramount is offloading all, like all of their movies to Amazon. Uh, it it seems like every other month a new Paramount new release is heading to Amazon. In the case of this one, like. Family movies we know do very well at the box office. We do not know what the box office looks like post pandemic. So we don't know if entire families are going. We know, you know, they're developing vaccines for younger people that, but they haven't yet released them. Um, will that hinder family movie going like family audiences? Because mm-hmm. the first few films coming out are Mortal Kombat, Godzilla versus Kong, a Saw sequel, A Quiet Place Part Two. These are PG-13 or R-rated films. Like these are movies for adults people who are vaccinated so i'll be curious to see what that first family film that comes out uh how well it does because we're not i mean and i mean there are films that are sort of like skirting the line of it like i don't you know cruella doesn't strike me as a family film you know it's a weird kind of pg-13 film luca is going straight to disney plus with no theatrical component i think there's a peter rabbit sequel coming out this month over maybe peter rabbit's coming out in july oh july okay Yeah. yeah So even that's a ways off. And the thing about Netflix is that if you look at their top 10 and, you know, we don't know for sure if their top 10 is fully accurate, but it's always full of family movies. So we know that family movies play extremely well on Netflix, especially because of rewatchability. You know, kids like to watch the same thing over and over and over again. So I do think that this movie will reach a pretty wide audience on Netflix. I still have not been able to suss out like how does success apply to filmmakers with Netflix movies? Like how does, like is Mike Rianda able to further his career when there is no, like it was this successful or it made this much at the box Mm -hmm. office. You know, the reviews for this movie have been stellar. Um, To me, this movie is the perfect kind of film that a scenario I would like to see happen is it gets a theatrical release. It is in theaters for at least three months. It has a traditional digital and Blu-ray release. And then it has like an exclusive streaming home on Netflix. So like, say like nine months after the theatrical release, therefore you get that theatrical boom, you get some kind of box office receipts. You get to see how that does. 
people can buy it, uh, you know, on home video, but then you put it on streaming. So it's just there in perpetuity for people to watch and you know, right. reach people all over the world who ha- didn't have a chance to see it in those other formats. But I don't know, you know, I don't know the numbers. I don't know how profitable that is. I don't know how much money it would have cost Sony to release it versus holding on to it. I do know yeah. also like the themes of it are pretty relevant to what was happening during the pandemic. So maybe holding it until like November, it maybe would have felt like, uh, I don't want to go back there again. Right. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, a movie where, where people get trapped in pods by machines mm-hmm. <laughs> may, not, may not, you know, and that's the thing. You never know, uh, you know, how these things are going to play out. I do think in the case of Mitchell's versus the machines, and I, I obviously could be wrong here. I would be surprised if it doesn't land a best animated Oscar, best yeah. animated film Oscar. Then again, I thought that the Lego movie was a shoe in for a best animated <laughs> film Oscar and that never happened. So who knows? Um, but they got their due with Spider-Verse. They did. They did to get their due. It was with not a Warner Brothers film, but it was uh, it was a Lord and Miller film. So yeah. They didn't direct it. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it how it pans out. I, I just I wish nothing but good things for, for these filmmakers. Um, because I, I adored this movie and I'm yeah. so excited to just to watch it again. It also just feels like it was made with love. Like it doesn't feel like it was made like with any cynicism in mind no no it, it it feels about as personal as a very expensive studio animated film can be yeah like it it's like, like it yeah. it's like soul but with jokes you know <laughs> like, like it's tackling it's emotional and it's tackling some pretty heady themes but it's also very funny it's also incredibly funny so yeah uh, i cannot recommend this film highly enough um and the fact that it's on netflix means it's it's pretty accessible what do you want to see from Lord and Miller going forward? Cause they're pretty busy. You know, Miller just wrapped his first solo project, which was a TV series mm-hmm. um, that I think is for Peacock. I can't remember what network it's for. Well, um, don't, aren't they working on something, some sort of astronaut? They're working on an astronaut film with Ryan Gosling. That's I think right. a, like a sci-fi second movie man. With Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Um, it's not they have the second clone man, but it should be called <laughs> second man. They have the Clone High revival that they're mm-hmm. executive producing and the writing and producing Spider-Verse. I guess my question is like, you know, is it enough for them to produce these things or or would you rather see them directing more and producing I, less? I would rather, I, well, first off, I think their imprint is valuable. I would like to see them writing and produce or writing and directing. Mm-hmm. But honestly, at that point, when I say like writing and directing, I think they should just be able to do whatever they want because their brand has been like, we're going to take things that don't that shouldn't work at all and make them brilliant like mm-hmm. a, a lego lego movie should not have worked at all that was brilliant 21 jump street should not have worked at all they made it brilliant and you know i think if they had been allowed to see see their solo film to the end i think it would have been memorable yeah um, i think it may not have been exactly what disney wanted but it would have <laughs> been memorable as opposed to the solo film we got which is not particularly memorable um, well, and in my interview with them, you know, when they came on board, Mitchell's versus the machines, Mike Rihanna had already been working on it for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and they told him, we're going to break this movie up. Like, we're going to break it down, but we're going to build it back up again. And that's kind of their process. Like, we have to take this apart and we have to figure, look and see like what's working, what's not. And then we build it back better. We build back better. Mm. <laughs> Top of uh, yeah <laughs> so that seems to be part of their process and it you know obviously the solo thing was super unfortunate it sounded like there was just some real apprehension on the part of the studio of like why are you improving so much are you even sure what you're doing um and like experimentation is part of their process it sounds like yeah i 
yeah, I, I won't go down the whole solo <laughs> rabbit hole, but it just it's I think I think the proof is in their work um, and their success and sort of the level of success that they've had. And I like the fact that they're still making these kind of, um, you know, Mitchell versus the machines is not an IP. It's not, you know, it's one thing to make Spider-Verse. It's one thing to make Star Wars. Um, but the fact that they're like, we still want to, you know, work on this uh, family uh, comedy is, I think, says to me that they're interested in good stories just as much as they are and sort of, you know, can we take this IP and make it work? Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for whatever they do next. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I'm here. Um, all right. Well, with that, um, cause I don't want to, again, I don't want to spoil too much of Mitchell versus the machines uh, and it's many brilliant jokes. Uh, let's move on to recently watched. Uh, what have you seen lately? It's time to talk about without remorse, Matt. It is time to talk about without <laughs> remorse. I, I watched without remorse uh, because it was on Amazon because I wanted to watch something new. Um, and I'm a fan of like Tom Clancy thrillers. Like I'm a fan of nineties thrillers. I, revisited the jack ryan movies a couple of years ago for the site uh and really enjoyed doing that although <laughs> patriot games is far more boring than i initially remember patriot games is very boring <laughs> it's not very good even as a kid i think i liked it just because of harrison ford but i think i probably like my intention was frayed i wasn't really like yeah you know paying super close attention but i really like clear and present danger hunt for red october obviously is incredible I even like uh, the Ben Affleck one, Some of All Fears. I think that's an interesting movie. Um, Chris Pinewood, not very good. <laughs> but without remorse, you know, I was interested to see a blockbuster helm, like spearheaded by Michael B. Jordan. I was interested to see what like a Tom Clancy thriller looked like. And it's all right. <laughs> it's okay. Like, I think you were pretty spot on in your in your review. Like he's a raw, badass action hero, um, which is who this character is. John, what's his name? John Kelly. John Kelly. Um, my problem with the movie is Taylor Sheridan. It's just so severe and so like punishingly dour. And I don't know, like I understand that when you're dealing with like militaristic should, stuff. And we should be clear. Taylor Sheridan is the co-writer of the film. The director is Stefano Salima. Yeah. Who, yeah. who directed Sicario 2. Yes. Yeah. Which was also written by Taylor Sheridan. Yes. Um, but yeah, Taylor Sheridan of Sicario, Hell or High Water, Yellowstone fame, um, who makes very, he writes very intense, severe stories, like yeah. with a lot of like death and contemplation and men brooding. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what without remorse is. And, you know, it's hard for me to say, like, I, I wish that this militaristic movie were more up, like, joyful <laughs> because the story is a man getting revenge for the murder of his wife and unborn child um but i don't know because it, it just makes it feel really gloomy and dour and i was just kind of like oh i get it that's the thing it's sort of like it's kind of like a 90s thriller plot wise but put through the filter of taylor sheridan's very dark and dour stuff yeah and so on the one hand it does i think scratch the itch of like if you want a tom clancy like it is tom clancy in the sense of like it's military stuff and there's intrigue and like the fate of the world is on the line yeah and really only the u.s military and its stabilizing force can restore global balance also bureaucrats get in the way 
Um, like it's that kind of, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just kind of the Reagan era worldview that he cared, you know, that Clancy created and it's kind of present here, but there is that level of darkness that, you know, I think there are films that evoke kind of a nineties flavor and they're fun. And this is just, I would, I would, it would be a stretch to ever call without remorse fun. And yet it offers all the comfort and predictability that you'd want from the genre. So it's this odd sort of dissonance of like, yes, it's comforting, but it's also like filled with shards of glass. Yeah. Yeah. And it's produced by Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec, who I think wrote on Mission Impossible 3. So like I, and produced by Akita Goldsman. And four. Yeah. And so I, you know, I felt like, I thought I knew what I was in for and I thought I knew what it was going to be. Um, and again, I didn't dislike the movie. I thought it was fine. I thought Michael B. Jordan did a really solid job, but there's just no, there's just absolutely no time for smirking or one-liners or even, you know, chemistry. Like I think Jodie Turner Smith gave a really good performance, but their like their relationship is all business and all seriousness. No, there's no, it's a film completely devoid of levity. Yeah. Um, and even like the, like, and the thing is, is that the Jack Ryan films kind of give themselves over to those moments of levity because Jack Ryan is always a man out of his depth. Like yeah. he's the idea is that he is sort of a, a desk bound analyst forced into the field and, you know, has to save the day. Whereas yeah. John Kelly is always the man of action. And so it's a little harder to sort of be like, well, how is he out of his depth? He can't be out of his depth. He can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, when there's nothing to sort of, there's no levity to cut it with, it just becomes kind of a lot um, but again, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to be like, like, this is not my kind of movie. Like I would not be like, yeah, give me the latest Clancy. Um, but if you, if you like that stuff, I mean, it, to me, it still kind of does what it says on the tin. Yeah. It, it's not, I don't know. I, I totally under, like if people, if this is not your film, I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, it's not really totally my film kind of film but i feel like eh, I, I don't know i'm not gonna get like angry of like they betrayed the soul of tom clancy <laughs> rolling and in again, his grave it's very much taking the assignment as this is a story about an, a man whose wife and whose pregnant wife has just been murdered what happens next so like it's very much taking that very deadly seriously like well, all right but- how grief stricken would he be how angry would he be mm-hmm. how vengeful would he be and it's just that because it's yeah. all in the immediate wake of that event. And then trying to do it with sort of like it, it, it sort of faints at being like, well, is it going to be like a John Wick kind of story where he's going mm-hmm. on his own? And then it like, no, he's going to be with like a troop of guys because this yeah. is Tom Clancy. Like you don't, yeah, yeah. you don't go it alone in a Tom Clancy story. You have military guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I would watch a sequel. I was, uh, I was reminded, I went and looked back because I was like, I remember reporting on this a long time ago. Uh, Christopher McCory was going to do it with Tom Hardy a while ago. So yeah, I think Bakori would be an interesting director for this franchise. <laughs> if he, I mean, you know, he's doing something else, which I am. He's, he's gonna, you know, it's so funny to me with Macquarie because I'm old enough to remember when they're like, you know, when we make these Mission Impossible films, we want a different director every time so that they each have a different <laughs> feel to them. You know, so he'll do five, and then it's like, you know, well, maybe he'll do six. <laughs> okay, now maybe he'll do seven and eight. <laughs> So well, in between he's done half of all Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> yes. And they're great. I mean, it's the best running franchise right now. And I think the between five and six, he did change up his filmmaking style. He did. And I'm very I think seven and eight could be very different. 
as well. Yeah. It's just it's just funny to me. It is very funny because yeah, that was the whole modus operandi, and like not just like we're gonna get a different direction. It'll be a different. It'll be wildly different. Like mm-hmm. John Woo to J.J. Abrams, different to like Brian De Palma to John Woo to J.J. Abrams. Those are three very different filmmakers. Right. Then now they're like, no, we've we've settled on. We, oh no, we found something that worked incredibly well. Let's not lose it. <laughs> yeah. Let's not give it up. So yeah, that'll um, be. I'm very excited for those movies. Yeah, I'm. I am slightly bummed that that seven got pushed to, to next year, but I, I know, get it. I know. Hopefully Top Gun is good. <sighs> Hopefully Top Gun is good. <laughs> I'm going to make, going to watch Matt patches of Polygon eat that shit. <laughs> yeah. he, he once claimed that he'll eat a shoe if that movie ever comes out and <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> it keeps getting delayed, but it keeps getting happen. delayed, but it's coming. Uh, all right. Uh, well, for me, I watched a really awful film. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I saw, varsity blues which came out in 1999 and um you know it just it just hit hbo max and i was like you know what i so i i was in high school when varsity blues came out but i didn't have really real much interest in seeing it but then like it am i i don't think i'm off base being like there is sort of like the film does have a following like people have yeah not- so i watched it when i was in middle school or high school and liked it like it it very much like friday night lights didn't exist yet so it was Mm -hmm. kind of like oh yeah like that and this was around the time of like remember the titans like very much like uh you know sports movies that dug into the lives of high schoolers who also had like troubled family lives but are just trying to make it and like get along and stuff that was the whole that was like a whole mini genre throughout the 90s um it didn't even have to be older remember hardball with keanu reeves I do remember Hardball. It's the baseball. same. I think it's the same director. They have the same. Is uh, it Varsity Blues, Varsity Blues as Varsity Blues? Who, and That's funny. although he only had made one movie before Varsity Blues, and that movie was Good Burger. <laughs> <laughs> the Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order? But yeah, there is like, and I imagine some people listening to this would be like, ah, oh, no way, Varsity Blues rules. Um, but I haven't seen it since the '90s, so it's entirely possible it. Varsity Blues is super fucking gross. Like it's just, <laughs> it's very like it is, it's misogynistic. It's tonally schizophrenic. Like it wants to have like you know deep dramatic moments, but then it'll be like sort of comical and sort of swinging for the fences, kind of loony. And it's like it's just the broadest film possible for what it's trying to do. Like again, it was it preceded the Friday Night Lights movie by five years, and then I don't know I, I don't know the first year of the TV series, but both the the movie and the TV series of Friday Night Lights are very earnest. They're very like I care about these individuals as people. Mm-hmm. Um, this feels like a bunch of Hollywood people, each one trying to do their best Texas impression. Like it's like <laughs> very much like patronizing to small town texans yeah Um, it's like all they care about is football they don't have inner lives they're all just a bunch of rednecks or hicks or whatever they don't uh they they they're very limited in scope and you know you know a couple of them maybe want to leave but most of them you know never have any grasp of the smallness of their lives it's very condescending (laughs) um and just like it's so i don't know and just kind of untethered from reality like they have a teacher who's teaching them sex ed and then like but that teacher later turns out is stripping at the strip club Mm -hmm. that they got into and then they're just hanging with her later and 
And it's just like, where, like, that doesn't happen. Like, that's not a huge, like, you know, like, that's not a thing. Um, and it's just like, there's just no humanity to it. And it's just kind of like a, it kind of becomes like a grind after a while. Um, so yeah, I was, I, I, if you like Varsity Blues, Godspeed, I thought it was maybe one of the worst films I've ever seen. I just thought it was, I thought it was tasteless and sort of poorly made. Um, you know, it's kind of feels like it was an MTV movies productions back when that existed. And it's not like MTV only like made bad movies all the time. Like I think MTV productions made election. Um, and also Joe's apartment. And okay. There's that. That's a film that exists. Um, but you know, I think Varsity that was the Blues, first one, right? I, get, I think that was the first MTV it, movie. It might have been, but Varsity Blues feels like made to sell like a soundtrack and yeah. it's just bad. Maybe uh, I'm curious, like maybe the lesson here is just like, if there's a middling film from the 90s that doesn't have critical praise, but people are, have a fondness for it, maybe don't go back and watch it. Because <laughs> <laughs> maybe it only worked in that snapshot of time. Where, uh, but that's know, all we I know how to do it. now is like watch films from the 90s. And I've, I mean, there've been stuff that's like, has been like I've there's been stuff that's been fun to rewatch. Like I rewatched Broken Arrow, and I thought mm-hmm. that was a delight. Yeah, uh, I thought Sudden Death was okay. Um, you know, uh, although it's not from the '90s, I think it's 2000 or 2001. Is Josie and the Pussycats, and that film is fantastic. Yes, the movie um, is genuinely good. As is the director's previous film, Can Hardly Wait, which is from the '90s, and I think does mm-hmm. hold up for the most yeah. part. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I was obsessed with it when I came the, out. The Ethan Embry, Jennifer Love Hewitt stuff is the weakest part of the film, but everything around that is really good. Seth Green is very funny in that movie. Um, I also can't judge you because if it's a 90s thriller, I will watch it. I don't right. care what the reviews were. There are so. 90s thrillers that I'm still trying to like check off my list. Like I've kind of, I, I always have been meaning to get around to watching Fallen with Denzel oh, Washington. Oh, Fallen is rough. Fallen is I know. Dark. Fallen is, seems to have a really dark premise, but uh, have you seen the Pelican Brief? Because that's on Netflix now. I saw the Pelican Brief um, when it came, like not maybe not when it came out, but around the time it came out. Because I was like, I I read like every John Grisham book as a child. <laughs> I was a weird middle schooler. I'm like, yeah, give that me, let me, oh man, Runaway Jury's on the shelf. Let me read that. <laughs> the Rainmaker. The Rain. Oh, I loved the Rainmaker as a kid. I loved. So long too. <laughs> I, you know, I was like, the movie's not as good as the book. Of the Rainmaker, but you know, I was like, ah, oh, the client didn't do it. I've I've read it, man. I read there was a '90s Grisham. I read it. That's funny. Yeah, the Pelican Brief holds up really well. I watched that uh, a few months ago, I think. Uh, yeah, I'll probably revisit that just because I've been sort of on a, a Pacula kick. I think Primal Fear is on HBO Max now. That that one is tremendous. That one is yeah. That one's really good. Really dark. Yes, super dark. <laughs> Uh, so yeah well we'll see what so else yeah the moral of the story less varsity blues more 90s thrillers more 90s thrillers that's you can't go wrong as evidenced by i watched sneakers for the first time wonderful although maybe that's 80s i think it was 1990 maybe no sneakers is a 90s movie is it it's 90s? like 92 oh okay yeah there we go uh all right well thank you all so much for listening if you want to keep up with this podcast you should follow us on twitter adam where can we find you on twitter at adam chitwood and you can find me at matt goldberg Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.